Hello and welcome to the Ties Fundamental Value Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of the Tie. Today, I'm incredibly excited to be joined by Mitchell Dong, founder and CEO of Pythagoras Investments. Uh, Mitchell, it's so great to have you on. Yeah, thank you. I look forward to chatting about all things crypto. Yeah, and so before we even kind of get into crypto, you had a very storied career uh, prior to discovering digital assets in the energy industry. So can you kind of walk me through uh, your career prior to entering crypto? Yeah, when you say storied, um, it makes me <laughs> it makes me laugh. Um, yeah, no, for, uh, for the first 25 years of my career, um, I used to build, develop, own, and operate hydroelectric, um, solar, um, and uh, cogeneration power plants. So I basically was a power plant uh, developer from uh, renewable energy. And uh, even as a teenager, I was very interested in the environmental business and, and how the play, interplay between energy and environment and how we have to produce clean energy. Uh, and this goes back to the, to the 70s. Um, so the first 25 years was building renewable energy plants before uh, it became extremely popular. And so one thing that I that really caught my eye was as I was going through your LinkedIn profile is obviously you've had a lot of successes, but one thing that I thought was 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 rather interesting was that you highlighted all of your failures and also the lessons that you've learned throughout those failures. So, you know, what are some of those the most important lessons that you think you learned, you know, in your pre-crypto life, but also in your in your, you know, your foray into this industry as well? Well, I, I learned that I learned more from my failures uh, than I do my successes because when you're successful. You just kind of bask in the sun, but when you when you fail, you really uh, have to do some deep reflection about what went wrong, lessons learned, and it's a big it's a struggle. So you learn a lot more from your failures, um, uh, and you also learn to be um, you know very humble. Uh, if you become arrogant, the, the market will punish you, and you have to uh, plan for what you don't know. Because I, I believe that it's what you don't know that that could kill you or hurt you. Um, so it's this constant search of the search of the unknown. And so, what was the you know when was the first time that you kind of stumbled upon crypto, and, and what was your initial foray into the space? Yeah, so it came uh, on the heels of a failure. Uh, I just failed de uh, developing two uh, very large uh, two billion dollar solar power plants, one near Las Vegas, one in Saudi Arabia. And uh, the financial crisis of 2008 really hurt those businesses because um, the utilities demand fell through the floor so that they didn't need or want incremental power, no less uh, solar power plants. So I was looking for something new to do. Um, and this was in uh, the 2013-14 uh, era. And I, uh, I looked at all the kind of new technology fads at the time, uh, not just blockchain, but, you know, 3D printing and drones and machine learning. And uh, a, um, a uh, employee of mine was, uh, had uh, some mining rigs in his apartment at the time I was living in Harvard Square. And I said, wow, this sounds like printing presses. So... I said, Tim, set up some rigs for me in the basement. And we set up these uh, ASIC cards. <clears throat> and it looked like a Rube Goldberg contraption in the basement next to my laundry room. And it was hot and it was making noise. 
And every what, time what did your like, what did your what did your wife think when you uh, yeah, when you said everything? Well, she out? went down there and she said, "You're gonna you're gonna blow up the house. <laughs> you know, it's hot and everything." And um, then we did got you have first... did you install ventilation or anything like that, no, or you guys had no, no idea? No, awesome. no idea, no That's idea. Awesome. So this was like a giant science experiment, a science project. So um, we got the first electric bill. Uh, the electric bill went from a thousand to ten thousand dollars in this house. And uh, and we had only made you know a couple thousand of, of Bitcoin and, and Litecoin, <clears throat> um, so we we shut that down. But when I went to sell uh, the Bitcoin, I noticed that the prices were all over the place, and that's when the so-called light bulb went off and uh, decided to do arbitrage. Um, yeah, so that was the the first. Uh, then we we started fun and arbitrage was the first thing we did. And so, yeah, my, I mean, my, my initial, you know, when I, when I read that and then also hearing you say that, you know, the initial thing that goes off my head is you had such a career in the energy industry. Right. And so, so my question, you know, to you is like, did you not think for a second, like, Hey, maybe there's a more efficient way to do this. I have a lot of experience with energy. If, you know, in my house, I can't mine it efficiently. Well, maybe, you know, maybe I can go off on my own and I can, you know, I can build a more efficient way to do this. I can get access to cheaper and, you know, electricity at scale. Was it ever a thought or was it really just, you know, this ARB thing makes no sense. It makes no sense that the price on, you know, at that time, probably Mt. Gox and BTCE and Bitfinex were just right. totally different. Like, I mean, did you ever, you know, kind of consider going down the mining route? Yeah, no, definitely. And, uh, you know, I, I was thinking, um, what would I do in 2014? If I knew then what I what I do now, and I would have made a lot more money if I had started a mining business, or if I started an exchange, uh, or if I just bought and held Bitcoin. Right? <laughs> I mean, if if I bought uh, Bitcoin at a hundred, uh, I'd be up you know more than a hundred x today, and I'm definitely not up a hundred x. It's nice to have what ifs. What ifs are right. what ifs are nice. I mean, one of my one of my co-founders was doing short-term Bitcoin loans back at the same time, 2013, and he was loaning them out and earning hundred percent interest on on Bitfinex back in the day. And right. he's like, This just seems too good to be true. I'm not doing this anymore. He's like, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to get my money off or what's gonna happen. He just pulled everything. It's like a what if, you know, there's so many oh, people we, in this industry that have those. Yeah, no, we did that too. I mean, on Bitfinex, this is uh 2000 and uh, yeah, 14, 15, and 16. Yeah. We we were making I don't know if we're making a hundred a hundred percent interest rate, but or we're fifty percent or ridiculous, fifty yeah, percent yeah. or twenty percent, whatever. Right. But then uh, we we got so enamored with it, we had fifty percent of our assets going into <laughs> August second, 2016, when Bitfinex got hacked and lost a third of their assets. And we were, you know, we were like nail biting and hanging on the cliff with our fingernails, you know, wondering if we're ever going to get our money back. Um, we did eventually, uh, you know, they signed a one third social loss. We had 50% of our money there. Um, and we sold the BFX token, which represented a percentage of their revenues for 50 cents on the dollar. So we cut our losses to 10%. But uh, it was a nail biting, highly stressful. Um, I don't know, four or five months there. If yeah. we had held, if we had held that token, we would have gotten all our money back in early seventeen. And if we held it through the end of seventeen, we would have made ten times our money. But we didn't. 
It's it's all, you know, you can say all these was what was the market like back in 2013, 2014, you know, versus today, you know, in terms of, you know, what liquidity looked like, what arbitrage opportunities look like, what latency looked like when actually connecting to exchanges, what like like how well did APIs of exchanges even function to trade back in right. 2013 versus today? Right. Well, latency wasn't, you know, wasn't even a word that that you'd ever consider because right. the spreads were so high. We were the first strategy um, was buy in the U.S., sell in China. Yep. So you buy on Bitfinex and you sell on OKEX, Huobi, and BTC China. Right. Um, and all of those exchanges, the Chinese exchanges, offered Bitcoin in U.S. dollars. But the Chinese were going crazy, and they heard that their cousin, their brother, whatever was, you know, had made a, a million. Uh, Chinese yuan, um, you know, uh, buying Bitcoin. So they are all bidding up the price. And because of Chinese capital controls, and because most of the Chinese retail uh, punters uh, prefer Chinese um, language websites, uh, you know, they, they didn't look at the rest of the world. They just bought Bitcoin in China and drove up the local price of Bitcoin on these Chinese exchanges. And so, how big were the were the the spreads? Oh, they were huge. I mean, uh, at least ten percent, twenty percent, thirty percent, and then uh, gradually from fourteen to seventeen, it shifted to China. Excuse me, from China to Japan and Korea, and there the spreads were even more ridiculous. You know, there were some trades we did in Korea where uh, the price of Bitcoin and Korean won was, was double the price. Uh, you know, in U.S. dollars. And so was your were your were your constraints just how fast you could move capital on you know and and withdraw from exchanges and things like that? Were you guys you know were you guys taking out loans and things like how how did you how did you execute this most efficiently? Right? I mean, if there's a if there's a two hundred percent premium somewhere and one hundred percent premium somewhere, obviously you want to get as much capital there as fast as possible. So so how are you guys able to accomplish that? And what limitations did you have? I use the example of Japan because it's the simplest to understand. Yep. Basically, uh, you you have U.S. dollars. You're buying uh, Bitcoin, say on Bitfinex or Bitstamp or one of the the yep. uh, more greater volume exchanges that existed in 2017, and you'd be selling on CoinCheck, uh, Zeif, um, Coin, which is now called Liquid, in Japanese yen. Yep. Um, and then you take your Japanese yen. You go to SMBC Bank, where we have a bank account. Uh, convert it to U.S. dollars and, and wire it back, uh, U.S. dollars back to, say, Bitfinex uh, to buy more Bitcoin in U.S. dollars. So it was how fast can you recycle the money? Right. Uh, of course, Bitcoin moved instantly. Right. Uh, and But moving uh, Japanese yen, U.S. dollars took, you know, on average three or four days. Right. So you, you, could, you could, you know, only recycle Every three or four days, right? But but the but the spreads lasted for almost the entire year, at least half of the year. So uh, we were you know just moving that moving that cash between Japan and U.S. as fast as possible. 
And and so now, you know, when you look at the market, obviously, you know, even looking at, you know, the height of the 2017 bull market, right? You know, I think sex.io had a, you know, uh, you know, like hit 2200 uh, or 22,000 or 21,000 for Bitcoin back in December 2017 and Kraken and some other exchanges were at like 196, right? And so those, you know, you know, there, there were clearly giant differences in, in, in spreads back then. But if we look today when Bitcoin hit, you know, 19, 8, 20,000, you know, we're talking, you know, a matter of $60 between the, you know, the, 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 the highest priced exchange and the lowest price exchange. And so what types of inefficiencies are you seeing now versus what you were seeing before? Are they easier to exploit? Are they more difficult to exploit? And, and how does, how has scale changed over the last couple of years? Sure. No, markets evolve and markets are constantly changing and our strategies have to constantly uh, constantly change. Um, I'd say the shelf life of uh, of our average strategy is only one to two years. And then the market changes. Either you get arbed out because there's competition coming in, or uh, the market has just fundamentally changed. Like instead of all retail, it drops to, you know, 50% retail. Or, you know, instead of being hot in one area, it's hot in another area. And the biggest, one of the biggest shifts uh, from 17 is the growth of the derivative markets. So where we used to trade 100% spot through 17, in 18, 19, and 20, it shifted to trading, um, I don't know, 90% derivatives, meaning the perpetual contracts, the futures, and the options. And uh, there's much greater liquidity. There are many more products. Um, there are many more arbitrage opportunities. Um, in derivatives than there is in the spot market. So that's probably the, the biggest difference compared to 2017 is trading derivatives. And so, you know, when I go out and I talk to a lot of quantitative funds, one of the biggest things that I hear is just the the lack of scalability of individual strategies, right? Saying we're capital constrained at $10 million this strategy or $20 million the strategy or $5 million or whatever the number is. And so how scalable are you you know, seeing individual strategies today versus before. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I obviously depends on the strategy, right. And what you're doing, but you know, what, what types of scale are you guys, you know, seeing are like, like, or do you think you're, you're maxing out the scale on certain things that you're doing? I mean, do you think there's, there's further room to invest in strategies that you're building? Um, we, we run uh, between our two funds, a hundred million and um, you know, we're, we 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 are continually able to um you know make returns that uh, that our investors were satisfied with um I, on peak days when things are really crazy i think we could deploy two to three times what we have um but we're constantly developing new strategies right so some of the newest things that we're going into of course you know things like defi has greatly increased um, op, you know, opportunities with it growing from a billion to 10 billion or from 100 million to 10 billion just this year alone. So right. that, that area has, has huge scale, which is un, unexploited. Um, another area is, uh, I guess it's related to DeFi, but it's just the borrowing and lending space. There are many, many more uh, lenders and borrowers, and uh, we see opportunities to borrow low and lend high. Um, the crypto option space uh, is really interesting and has grown by 10x, you know, this year. Um, so all of these 
they say, and, and you never know, the crypto is so crazy that you wake up one day and, you know, all of a sudden there's a whole new thing, right? So there's constantly new people, new products, new ideas, new government regulations or lack of government regulations that create more and more arbitrage opportunities. And you just have to, uh, like, you know, our team of 11 people, um, most of the people are constantly on the hunt uh, for new trading strategies. And so have you, have you then, you know, you mentioned you having a fund around or between both your funds around hundred million in AUM, have you been rec- re- returning, um, you know, funds to your LPs over time, you know, because you can't reinvest them or are you continuing to reinvest any, any, uh, no, we were constantly reinvesting. I mean, the turnover of our, you know, trading strategies is, you know, I don't know, a couple times a week, um, is our turnover or yep. more. I mean, when things are really crazy, it could turn over couple times a day, but yep. on average. But in terms of uh, returning capital, because we don't have capacity, no, that's not been an issue. And and so how many assets are you guys uh, actively trading? And, and how has that changed over time? You mean like how many coins? Yeah, how many coins? Trading? How many coins? Yeah, we do the top 10 crypto, um, whatever cryptos have derivatives. Um, and we're on 20 exchanges. But we, but because of counterparty risk, which is the biggest risk we face, uh, we don't put more than 10% on any one exchange. And we're always on the hunt for developing strategies, not across, not just across exchanges, but within exchanges too, because you get more capital efficiency if you, if you don't have to keep moving things between exchanges. But counterparty risk is, is our biggest risk. So we like, you know, the older, uh, biggest exchanges with um, with very high profit margins and very high cash flows. And you take, for example, there was a press release uh, by uh, Binance where CZ was interviewed by Bloomberg, and he said that they're going to finish the year at 800 million to a billion of uh, of cash flow or of net profits. How many businesses do you know that are four years old that have a billion dollars of EBITDA? I mean, it's like mind blowing, right? That's unbelievable. There are many, there are many unicorns in the world, but having a billion dollars of EBITDA right. is, you know, a hundred times better than being uh, having a market cap of a billion dollars. Right. Right. No, a hundred percent, hundred percent. And I mean, I think like like for me, they they burn their uh, tokens. Uh, let's say equal to twenty percent of their revenues, and from that you can estimate that this year they'll have. Uh, an EBITDA or a net profits of, of 800 million a year. I mean, it's incredible. So with that type of, of cash flow, they can invest in security. And if there is a loss, they can cover it out, out of their own pockets. I mean, you take CoinCheck in 2017. Uh, if you recall, they, they had a $500 million hack of a coin called NEM. And they, they covered it, covered customer losses out of their own pocket because at the time, their run rate was, uh, you know, a billion dollars of EBITDA. So they can cover 500 million out of their own pocket. They have the resources and the incentive to do so because they want to keep the customers happy to keep the machine running. Right. No, that certainly makes sense. It certainly makes sense. And so what are some of the other biggest challenges, obviously, other than counterparty risk um, that, that you guys face and, and kind of following that up? What, where do you see the biggest competitive threats and biggest opportunities? 
Well, the thing that we really would love to have and, and are waiting for is Goldman Sachs uh, offering custodial and prime brokerage services uh, or Morgan Stanley, Credit Suisse, any of the top uh, 10 prime brokers in the traditional finance that serve the funds. If any of one of those got into prime brokerage custody, uh, that that would really uh, propel us. Now, it would uh, help the competition as well, but it would help us a lot. So that's one of the biggest. So what specifically about Goldman entering prime services would be helpful for you? Well, as we all know, there, there's been a huge boom or um, huge growth of startups uh, providing custody services. You take Fireblocks or uh, or copper or Anchorage, Bitgo. There's so Anchorage, many of them. Yeah, Bitgo, Coinbase. Yeah. They all offer custodial. Ser- Fidelity offers custodial services uh, for crypto, but um, it's not for high frequency traders uh, because it takes a while to move stuff out of a bank. You know, I mean, a cold storage. Cold storage, uh, which is in a vault in the Alps. Of I mean, one of the biggest things that always worries me is I'm like, if if you get margin called and you have funds in cold storage, like, what do you do? I mean, you have to borrow overnight, I guess. But like, I mean, that yeah, to me, that's like one of the biggest risks and one of the biggest challenges. Yeah. So it's a big, it's a big, uh, right now, uh, the biggest risk is counterparty risk. The biggest challenge is getting custodians that can serve I would say high frequency traders, but traders that trade uh, every minute or every hour. Yeah, traders um, rather than investors, I think even. It doesn't even need to be high frequency. Right. And then the next step is right now we have um, very interesting technology offerings from current custodians, but none of them have a balance sheet like Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan or Credit Suisse. And none of them offer prime brokerage services where you could put money uh, in a custodian and you could trade on 20 different exchanges. There are companies like Xmargin uh, that are moving in that direction and um, have that on their roadmap, but it doesn't exist yet. Um, there was an announcement by uh, JP Morgan that they were talking to uh, some of these custodians, and I verified that because we talked to the custodians too, that uh, they were, uh, JP Morgan was thinking about maybe going to these custodians and having them be the sub-custodian, but you have the JP Morgan name and balance sheet. Yeah. Uh, and and that 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 would be a game changer. And, and State Street, I think, uh, was testing that with Gemini as well at some point. Right. No, that would be great. If you get State Street's balance sheet and Gemini's technology, um, that that would be a game changer. And so, and so what are the, you know, what are the biggest opportunities? Uh, you know, I mean, either for Pythagoras. For crypto, you know, for the industry, like where where do you think where do you think the biggest opportunities lie? Well, um, Bitcoin at twenty thousand opens up a whole new uh, set of opportunities compared to Bitcoin at ten thousand or at three thousand, um, and it's it's kind of like uh, you're drilling for oil, and uh, you're drilling for oil and the price of oil is $50 a barrel. And all of a sudden it goes to $100 a barrel and it goes to $200 a barrel. All of a sudden, a lot of marginal things that did not work at 50, they work at 100 or they work at 200. Um, so uh, at 20,000 Bitcoin and 
maybe someday 30, 50,000 Bitcoin. It just opens up so many more things in the world. I mean, mining looks completely different. The uh, economics of exchanges, uh, the economics of trading, everything changes uh, when when the price goes way up. So, uh, you know, use your imagination. So many more things are are possible. And so, you know, kind of to that point, and 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 you know, I think I, I'm, I'm you you may have read that I wrote this. You know, we have asked, we have not asked any of our guests, or we've asked them actually to refrain from making price predictions in episodes because I think, generally speaking, people in hindsight look very wrong, uh, and a lot of times these these price predictions are, are very are, are baseless. But I think there is something that you wrote in a blog post on November 11th, which is about a month ago, a little bit more than a month ago, um, which I kind of want to read, and I kind of like to get your 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 take on that which is that personally I'm bullish. I subscribe to the argument that there's a limited supply of Bitcoin like gold. And with all the government printing presses going full bore, inflation will creep back after the pandemic, which will drive up the price of Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin will hit an all-time high of 20,000 within a year. Obviously, that was correct. It took only a month. But the chances of it doubling are equal to the chances of the price being cut in half. I don't take 50-50 bets. So my question for you is, you know, how has your outlook changed over the last month? Are you holding or have you ever held long term? But I think to kind of tie back in what you said earlier, you know, one of the things that you said earlier is if we had gone into mining or if we had just held Bitcoin back in 2014, we would have been way better off. Do you feel like potentially we're in a situation now where, you know, there are more opportunities to be a holder or to invest in infrastructure than to, to you know, operate a systematic, uh, you know, market neutral fund? You know, it depends on your uh, risk return profile. Uh, so let's say I had bought Bitcoin when I first got in. It, it was uh, Bitcoin was about 800. It had dipped down to as low as 100. But let's just take an example. Uh, if I bought it at 100 and I'm up 100x, there have been since then there have been at least three times Bitcoin's been down 90 percent, and there have been maybe close to 10 times it's been down 50 percent on its way. Going from one hundred to to ten thousand, is your do you have the stomach uh, or the discipline or the emotion, emotional uh, character or capability to stomach three ninety percent losses? Um, I, I to tell you that I, I the first ninety percent loss I, I would have been out, um, or the second ninety percent loss I was you know I was stupid the first time. I'm going to be like stupid again. So it just depends on your risk, uh, risk return profile, right? Right. So, 100%. I, so arbitrage is a slow and steady, uh, one to two percent a month with never being down. And, and so, and so, how do you benchmark then? Uh, or, or, do you have a benchmark? Well, um, if we use buy and hold Bitcoin, <laughs> we'd be in the yes. seller, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> The benchmark uh, uh, of my investors is uh, my investors mostly hold traditional stocks and bonds, right? Right. So you compare our fund to the S&P, you compare it to holding T-bills, and some compares to holding gold. Right. And over the last six years, since we started in 2014, uh, cumulatively over six years, we beat all those benchmarks. Right. There's something about benchmarks is that if you're a fund manager, you never choose a benchmark that beats you. You always look for benchmarks that you beat. Yep, yep. And I'm fortunate that we beat the S&P uh, uh, T-bills and gold over those six, 
those six years. And as soon as they beat me, I'll eliminate that as a benchmark. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. One of the other things that I found interesting, actually, is I was looking through your form, your form D's and your form DA's as I, I love to do one of my favorite things. And, um, one of the things I noticed is that, you know, you only have a, uh, you have, you have a small number of investors, but that have invested a large number of, of, of a large amount of capital. And so, you know, obviously not asking you to name, you know, your investors, but are like, are these family offices or these high net worth individuals? Who are you actually going to? And and who's are the people that are interested in investing in you? You said they're investing in more traditional assets. Are they invested in crypto more broadly? Or are they more invested in just the opportunities that a systematic strategy in this space you know offers? And and has that changed? Yeah, our our uh, we don't have many investors. I mean, and uh, we uh, we ourselves, me and my couple of business partners are. The second largest investor in our own fund, right? Uh, one of the first things, because I also invested in outside hedge funds, not just crypto, but other mm-hmm. portfolio of hedge funds. One of the important questions you ask is to the manager, how much of your own money is in your own fund, right? Yep. You want a cook that's eating his own cooking. Yep. Um, in terms of our investors, uh, we talk to a lot of family offices, high net worth individuals, and uh, uh, you know, it, it's hard to raise money in this business because it's crypto. I mean, uh, the the good news of being, um, uh, the good news of, uh, well, being in crypto is a double-edged sword. Uh, because it's crypto, you have inefficiencies and trading opportunities. The, the bad news of being crypto is that it's hard to raise money. Um, so uh, our, our uh, biggest Investors are fund of funds in, from the traditional space, uh, which have you know every conceivable uh, investment strategy in the traditional space. Yep, and we're their one crypto you know allocation. Got it. And so you know that said, then what are your thoughts on you know all this new institutional investment in this space and all the capital that's been pouring in? You know, primarily to Bitcoin, um, or almost entirely to Bitcoin over the last month, I would even say, or you know, last yeah. few months, obviously. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you read. I, I wrote an article. Uh, I did. I did. Listing the biggest investors that have come in just in the past month. It's just. And it's I think just, you're. I think now that that it, that that list needs an update just from yesterday. Yeah, uh, I know. <laughs> I didn't add. I didn't add Mass Mutual to it, um, and, and now I have to add uh, the fact that Pornhub. Uh, being <laughs> being rejected by Mastercard and Visa uh, has to take uh, can, uh, you know is is taking crypto for their services. I was joking with a friend. They asked me what's driving the price of of uh, Bitcoin these days. I said it's the Pornhub announcement. Uh, but uh, but the list of uh, institutional investors it's it's really uh, amazing. All of a sudden you have you know. Uh, Paul Tudor Jones, Stanley Buck, Druckenmiller, Alliance Bernstein, uh, Mass Mutual. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. BlackRock, um, all now endorsing Bitcoin or saying they have one percent or two percent. Yeah, the CIO of Guggenheim yesterday going on going on Bloomberg and throwing out a four hundred thousand dollar price prediction. And, and, and I don't know if you saw that. And Bloomberg and and the, the anchor at Bloomberg was like, "What? 
he's like, we're, we're supposed to have, I think they were supposed to have, go to a Fed speech or something. He's like, this is the first time we've ever delayed a Fed speech. Like, what did you just say? And it was just, it's, 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 it's been wild. So what do you think the, the ramifications that that's going to have on the space? Where do you think capital is actually going to flow? Do you think it's just going to continue to flow to long positions in Bitcoin? And, you know, does any of this recent, you know, price euphoria feel bubble? Like, I mean, you mentioned you've been here for so long, you've seen three 90% corrections and, and obviously, you know, many bubbles along the way. Did, are you getting any of that same feeling this time around? Yeah, well, I, each time is different, right? And this time feels different because now, as, as opposed to just uh, retail people, um, you know, jumping in, it's big institutions jumping in. Uh, so that's different. Um, and there's a broader base of investors. Um, uh, so it, it feels different. And um, I'm, I'm bullish, but as I, as I say, there's... A 50-50 chance whether it's going to go up 50% or down 50%. Um, yeah, uh, it, it, but it's definitely different than 2017. And so, kind of, you know, going back to Pythagoras, what what types of data are you guys are you guys still primarily or almost entirely ARB? Are you guys looking at alternative data yet in any of your strategies? Um, is that something that we're, you're, you're? We're always looking at anything that can give us an edge, right? And we're approached by many alternative data providers, uh, people that collect sentiment. And, uh, you know, we're, we're constantly testing all of them. And uh, if something works and we can explain it, uh, we we put a little bit of money into it and try it out and, you know, keep keep scaling it, uh, but with with risk controls. And and so, what do you think are the largest data challenge? Or are, do you think there are large data challenges in the space? And and where do you think they exist? Like, I mean, I, I know that you know you, you know them as well. The FPG guys love to talk about how terrible the Gemini API is all the time and how it always goes down. And you know, obviously, that's more of a technology problem. But you know, what what are the problems that you see in this space? And and kind of the biggest opportunities from 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 I guess technology and data as it relates to even just market data. Hmm. Well, we we get uh, we I wouldn't say it's a huge challenge, uh, you know, but but you know certainly APIs going down and uh, is a big thing. Um, we we seem to get you know the data that we need from from the exchanges. I guess one challenge is in not in trading but in the middle office and back office, because to run an institutional fund. Um, you know, you have to have a credible auditor, like our auditors, KPMG, uh, and and uh, they in turn depend on the, the fund administrator or the uh, accountant, the outside independent accounting firm that reconciles all the trades on, on a daily basis. And they're always having challenges. Um, you know, if you're trading a thousand trades a day or 10,000 trades a day, uh, that obviously is an automated process. And sometimes the accountants are, are, I don't know, not getting the data or the, 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 the data from the exchanges is coming too slowly so they can't produce reliably and timely daily uh, NAVs. Now, we don't distribute daily NAVs, but uh, we need to reconcile on a daily basis. So I, I think the challenges are more in the middle and back office. And do you think that that's going to be worse with DeFi? Um, oh, yeah. Oh, DeFi is a nightmare in in that category, and then the tax. Uh, uh, God knows, spent 
hours and hours with the tax accountants on how, uh, looking at the tax implications of DeFi. Um, that's a whole rabbit hole that um, I did an hour and a half podcast episode just on the tax implications of DeFi. So I, I, I've been down that rabbit hole. It's, uh, well, it's deep to, and long and, and, and far. I'd, I'd love to get that podcast and get it to our uh, tax accountants because they're ripping their hair out over how to. Yeah. The, uh, the guy I was talking to, to Dan Hannum, who's a friend, he's the CEO of Zen Ledger, uh, which is one of the companies, you know, providing tax services. And, you know, they're talking about how, you know, you know, looking at, you know, they have to run their own nodes now on, you know, the Ethereum blockchain to pull transactions and just, yeah, it's, uh, I'm glad that I'm not in that business because it does not seem like a fun business to be in. <laughs> right, right. And so you mentioned earlier that you're an active investor in other funds, uh, whether that be VC, PE, hedge funds. Uh, you know, what types of funds are, 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 sorry, rather, are you allocating to other crypto funds? And if so, what types of crypto funds are you allocating to and why? Right. So uh, in general, um, before I got into crypto and still simultaneously with crypto, I have a robust family office because of the, uh, you know, all the power plants that were built and sold in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, so I've always invested in, in hedge funds and run hedge funds. Uh, and the the family office portfolio has a, you know, is in all a broad, diversified um, portfolio of of every asset class expressed through funds, mutual funds, private equity, venture funds. Uh, the only thing we do directly is real estate. Within crypto, um, uh, I like the um, uh, I like some of the venture funds. So uh, the family office is invested in. Polychain, a couple of the Pantera funds, uh, block, uh, blockchain capital, block tower capital, um, because we're, we're getting exposure to um, early stage blockchain companies or early stage crypto companies uh, where we don't have expertise, but you know we want exposure to that space because we're in general bullish about the space and we understand the space. And there's some strategic value because, um, like I mentioned, X margins, uh, I learned about them because Polychain had invested in them. And now it's, it's a, it's, it's a group that we might be able to do business with in our funds. Um, in terms of, uh, crypto trading funds, um, we like seeding early stage traders that maybe, uh, like, for example, I'm thinking of a guy who has spent his whole career trading traditional options and has a real edge in understanding and trading uh, options and is new to crypto options. So we're seeding um, uh, his fund. Um, I'm going back now to 2014 and 15. Uh, there was a trader that was very good with, uh, with futures, traditional futures, and designed the futures product for OKEX and Horby. And uh, we gave him money to trade um, crypto futures. And uh, uh, it was a very useful and profitable relationship. And, um, uh, and we learned a lot uh, from that uh, exposure. In general, I say we go into crypto, other crypto trading funds that are either better than us or, or different than, than what we do. Um, it's not difficult to be better than us so that's not a terribly high bar. 
and uh, to be different, um, that's not a terribly high bar too. But um, we like to go into funds where we can also add value, uh, where maybe uh, they're good traders, but maybe we can add something in risk control. Or maybe they're good traders, but they need uh, the exchange relationships. Or they're good traders. They have something, but we can also add value and work together in partnership. So we're always on the hunt for good talent. And we don't pretend that, you know, that our people are the most talented in the world. I believe that we're, we have very good, talented folks, but uh, talent is all over the world. Uh, and we're always looking for those, those opportunities. And so I think given that you've, you've made a, a number of inve- venture investments, and obviously, you know, you say that that's not, you know, what you're best at or, or what you're focused on. But one question, you know, obviously, this is called the fundamental value podcast. And, you know, part of that tries to discern what is the quote unquote, fundamental value of, of Bitcoin and other digital assets. And so how do you th- even start to think about fundamentals for digital assets? And does it depend on the token? Right? Well, um, I don't think there's a lot of fundamental value to Bitcoin itself. Uh, I think there is fundamental value in the blockchain technology, but blockchain technology wouldn't be famous without Bitcoin. And Bitcoin, what what, what was the name of that beer? Uh, was it Miller or Schlitz, the beer that made Milwaukee famous? Um, Bitcoin is the tech, is the currency or the item or the thing that made blockchain things, right? right. Um, but uh, uh, by contrast, you, you take some of the DeFi uh, tokens or the exchange broke tokens, they actually do have fundamental value in that they have a cash flow. Like you take uh, um, the HoiB token, HT, or the uh, OKB, the OKEX uh, token, or, the, or LEO, they actually produce a cash flow. Um, so obviously, there's fundamental value in having a percentage of revenues of a of an exchange, or in DeFi, um, you know they they have cash flow because they have users that are you know using it, and there's a a cash flow associated with the fees uh, of DEXs. Um, so there are there are some tokens that do have fundamental value. Uh, Bitcoin itself. Um, you know, it doesn't have fundamental value, but a little bit like gold, it uh, its price depends on supply and demand. And so, what has you most excited as you know, as either a crypto investor or as an investor most broadly in twenty twenty one? Well, I mean, uh, we're all. I mean, all of us uh, in the community are um, extremely excited about <laughs> the fact that Bitcoin at twenty three thousand. Uh, you know, in the last couple of hours or last night. Uh, so that's uh, super exciting. Um, it's always good to get uh, favorable uh, press um, uh, in in the industry because the industry has had so much bad press. Uh, on the opposite side, what's been the biggest disappointments are all the continuous hacks, right? I mean, the, the hackers are, you know, doing better than... Many investors in in Bitcoin because they're so successful at stealing and hacking. Uh, just a friend of mine the other day. Um, this is kind of sad. Uh, she um, she had all of her crypto for Bitcoin in uh, I think it's Ledger Nano or something like that, and she got an um, 
an email or a text from uh, Ledger um, saying, you know, there's maintenance, uh, you know, just reply here. And she replied there and next thing you know, $2 million of Bitcoin were, were siphoned out of her hardware wallet. Um, and you just hear these stories all the time. Um, I mean, the biggest scare we had this year was uh, the OKEX scare where Star Sue, the, the founder, was uh, arrested by the police and they had to suspend uh, withdrawals for 40 days. It was the worst 40 days I spent this year. Um, I read that uh, the CEO of uh, Nexus Mutual got hacked and somebody stole, you know, eight, eight million of NXM from him. And it wasn't just like some random person that held uh, Nexus Mutual, it was the CEO, and he got hacked. So uh, that's the biggest disappointment of the year is the increasing um, number of hacks and how clever uh, the hackers have become. Yeah, and, and and when you know, kind of dealing with risk management with your fund and, and interacting with DeFi, I mean, that certainly must be a, a very large consideration that you have with oh, yeah, interacting with anything. Yeah, no. Anytime we go into a new thing like DeFi, the the thing is always like, what's you know, what's the downside? What's the risk? When we're considering these custodians, um, you know, look at the custodians. What happens if there's a technology failure with a custodian? And you can't get your crypto out of the custodian, right? Um, so it's an exciting space where everything's new, everything's growing. Um, and but as we know, sometimes pioneers are the ones that end up with arrows in their back. Yeah, I think that's very well said. And so my final question, and, and you know, like to usually end up with something not crypto related, is you know, you are you're very involved with with you know, a number of different philanthropic ventures. And so what are the causes that you are most passionate about and, and where do you hope to make, you know, be able to make the most difference? Right. So one dream is to eliminate all coal-fired power plants and replace them with solar. Um, I worked in the solar industry and the hydroelectric industry for over half of my career. So that's one dream. But where I put my uh, money philanthropically is in public health. Um, and I've been doing this since I was a teenager working in public health. And the motto that I most subscribe to is that um, an, an ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of cure, that it's better to prevent disease than to get the disease and uh, come up with a corrective uh, medicine. It's far uh, cheaper to prevent the disease than to cure it afterwards. So my money goes to the Harvard uh, Chan School of Public Health and uh, endowing um, professorship, uh, scholarships, and funding research there. Uh, and hopefully, um, and well, not hopefully, they're having a big impact on uh, the current pandemic and hopefully uh, in the future preventing future pandemics and getting people aware of the importance of, of public health. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's very well said. And um, the, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate having you on all your insight. You know, where can everybody find you? Um, you know, you have a blog, you have a website, and I'll make sure to include all that in the description. But, you know, sure. You well, let, let everybody know. has a website, Pythagoras Thought Investments. Um, I'm, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I have my own website. So love to hear uh, reactions from, from your listeners. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mitchell. I appreciate it. Okay.